0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McLarty.
1: Tonight, we're going to look at Psalm 20 and 21. They are both short psalms, and they are very direct. They are not complicated. It doesn't take a whole lot of interpreting to understand them. But before we get to Psalm 20, verse 1, I want to talk a little bit about the word Yahweh. One of the things that I like about the Legacy Standard Bible is that even though it is essentially the NASB, they have made the effort to translate Yahweh as Yahweh instead of the word Lord. Uh, Starting with some of the earliest English versions, you will see that the translators, in order to convey the name, used capital L-O-R-D in place of the name The name itself is for consonants, and so it is called the tetragrammaton. And all that means is four-letter name. And so the Jews, out of an overabundance of respect for the name of God, didn't want to pronounce or even write the name of God. And in fact, so the story goes when some of the earliest scribes, would write the name of God. Once they had used a quill to write that name, they would then dispose of that quill because it had written the name of God. And then they would pick up a new quill and continue on. But because of that respect for the name of God, they wouldn't say the name that God himself said, this is my name. The reason that's important is that when you think about the gods of like Egypt, they had names. The sun god was raw. Mm. We know the various different gods who make up, like the Greek or the Roman pantheon and mythology. You can name them. And in fact, they're very much a part of our culture to this very day. And they all have names. When Moses saw the burning bush, when the burning bush said, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, naturally, Pharaoh who has this whole pantheon of gods, each of whom have individual names, Moses asks the very natural question, who are you? Which God are you? Who should I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am. Well, that's what the name Yahweh conveys. Those four letters, Y, H, W, H in English letters, mean to be. That's the essence, the root of those letters or the one who causes being. Well, the Jews, not willing to pronounce that name, took the vowel sounds from the name Adonai. The word Adonai, I've pointed it out a couple of different times here, is translated God. Sometimes you'll see Lord God, or you are my God, my Lord. That is a combination of the words Adonai and Yahweh. So they took the vowel sounds from Adonai and put them into Yahweh. And came up with this name, Yehovah, which we now call Jehovah. When you say the name Jehovah, you are saying a made up name. That's not a name that God ever gave Himself. He said, You'll refer to me by the name Yahweh. And the importance of using that name is that it is the name that God has revealed Himself through, and then tells people to call himself by that name. We just don't do it. Instead, because of the way that the Bibles are translated, we read this word, Lord. But the word Lord can mean a great many things, like, for instance, Sarah and Abraham. We read that Sarah reverenced her husband, called him Lord. Okay, well, that's not Yahweh. That just means master. And so in order to make a purposeful distinguishing between Lord as Master and capital L-O-R-D as Yahweh, I have been trying more and more to use the name Yahweh, where the name Yahweh is actually in the text, because it is a revelatory name. Mm. You may be familiar with the various what are known as Jehovah names like Jehovah Nisi or Jehovah Shalom. The reason that God adds those names to his name Yahweh is because that is one demonstration of who he is and what he is like. He is the enough God. He is the God who is a shepherd. He is the God who is almighty. But in every place where you see these Jehovah names, they're actually the Yahweh names. They're actually God demonstrating who he is by name. This is me. Call me by my name. And that self-revelatory name has all of these qualities inherent in it. And then we don't call him by that name. So the very first phrase of Psalm 20 is, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. But that's not what David wrote. He wrote, may this particular God May this God who has revealed himself as the God of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel, may this God who is the protector who has chosen Israel, may Yahweh in particular look after you. May Yahweh answer you in the day of your trouble. And that sets the tone for the whole rest of this psalm. The entirety of this psalm is David praying that Yahweh will look after his people. Now, he's speaking particularly about Israel in this psalm, and yet I think you can safely apply it to yourself because this is David's prayer that Yahweh would look out for his chosen people. And as you're reading these various different blessings and prayers that David is laying out, recognize that it is more than just saying, I hope this happens for you. It is declaring the kind of God that Yahweh is. God is the kind of faithful God who would look out for his people and protect his people. So David is resting on, relying on the nature and the character of Yahweh in order to hand out these blessings. Now, I know that I said we're in Psalm 20. Keep your finger there and turn, if you would, real quickly back to Numbers 6. Because in number six, we read about Aaron's benediction. And Aaron's benediction is very, very similar to Psalm 20. It is another one of those declarations that may the Lord do this for you. May the Lord protect you. May the Lord lift up his face to you and shine on you. That's the same nature, the same character as what we're going to read in Psalm 20. So let's first read Aaron's benediction. May the Lord, what word is that? Yahweh. That's Yahweh, the particular Lord. Not just any God, not a God of the pantheon of Egypt or the mythology of Rome or Greece. This particular God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, that God. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the sons of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. Yahweh bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. That's his being that he would reveal himself to you and lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. So they shall invoke my name on the sons of Israel. So when they hand out this blessing of Yahweh bless you, Yahweh keep you and be gracious to you, Yahweh lift up his countenance on you, that is invoking the name of God, which we now don't do. We don't invoke his name because it's been translated as the Lord bless you. That's generic. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you and yet God was revealing himself by his I am name in order to say, I am the God who actually is, as opposed to all those other gods who are not. I am the self-revelatory God. I am the creator and sustainer of all things, and that is wrapped up in my name, which even means to be or to bring into being. And you lose all of that sense when you say, the Lord So I want to emphasize yet again the importance of calling God by the name that he himself has revealed to human beings. I understand reverence toward God, and it is vitally important that we do fear and reverence God, but sometimes if that reverence is a denial of what God has revealed to you, well then you've taken your reverence too far. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. So all of that takes us to Psalm 20, verse 1. May Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God, the Adonai of Jacob. Who is the God of Jacob? Yahweh. Yahweh. And he says here, may the name of the God of Jacob. Very important. That name is Yahweh. The very same name he used in the previous sentence, the very same name that God revealed to Aaron in the benediction, in this they will invoke my name. May the name of the God of Jacob set you securely on high. So David, in handing out this blessing, is saying, may God protect you the same way as the benediction of Aaron. May God look after you. May he set his security on you so that as you walk through this life, you know that you've got the maker of heaven and earth protecting you, providing for you, revealing himself to you. May the name of the God of Jacob set you on high. May he send you help From the sanctuary and support you from Zion in Jewish reckoning at the time of David, remember that Zion, Jerusalem, is the place where God had chosen to place his name. And the sanctuary is the place where the holiest place was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God would come and meet with men. And so the thinking was the God of Israel resides in that temple, and the blessings of God emanate from that temple and emanate from Jerusalem. And so David would say that he will send help from the sanctuary, and he will support you from Zion. And may he remember all your meal offerings and find your burnt offerings acceptable. Selah, think about that. David wants you to pause for a moment and just think about who it is that's got your back, who it is that you've been worshiping toward, who it is that you've been bringing offerings and sacrifices. By the way, the meal offering and the burnt offering, those offerings are commanded in the law of God, in the law of Moses. They're told how to do their meal offerings, how to do their burnt offerings, and they're required. It's not... Voluntary, It's not, well, if you feel like it, go do it. And so it was very easy for the children of Israel to start treating that like just rote religion. This is what's required. I just do it. So David here points out that God himself is being honored and worshiped through these sacrifices. (laughs) And so the prayer of David is, may God remember that you've done these things. These are memorials to that God. And that God is going to send you help and support you from Zion. And he's going to remember that you have brought your offerings to him. Think about that. Verse 4 can very easily be taken out of context and twisted in all kinds of name it, claim it ways. Because it says, may he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel." Boy, you can yank that out of context and say, oh, well, then I get to go to God and just say, here's the list of things I want in a very Santa Claus type way. And I want you to do these things for me. And I expect you to do them because David said, may God give you all the desires of your heart. If you want to understand what David means by that, just go forward to Psalm 37 for a moment. Psalm 37. And we're going to look at verse 4, which says, I still hear pages flipping. That's not what it says. I mean, that's what I heard. But It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So if the desire of your heart is Yahweh, Yahweh will give you the desire of your heart. So the prerequisite to asking God for the desires of your heart is to make sure that you are in right relationship with God and that he is the chief delight, the chief desire of your heart. And then if he is the primary thing that you love and desire in this life, just like Jesus said, you love your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. If that's your relationship with him, then he's also going to provide for you the things you need in this lifetime. But it starts with him. David's thinking is not, God is just a great uh, slot machine in heaven, and you can just go to him at any time and just say, you know, come on, lucky seven. I just want whatever I want whenever I want it, and then God is required to give me whatever I want. Instead, David's thinking, David's theology, very clearly is, First comes God, and if God is the true desire of your heart, then he's also going to give you the desire of your heart, which is himself, and provide for your other needs. That's the relationship. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your counsel. We will sing for joy over your victory. In other words, whenever God does deliver you, whenever he saves you, whenever he provides for you, We, collectively, will be singing for joy because God is faithfully caring for his people. And in the name of God, we will set up our banners. What is the name of God? Have I I driven that home enough yet? Will you go home remembering that now? Because David keeps bringing up the name of our God, which name God has provided for us. We will sing for joy over your victory. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord, Yahweh, fulfill all of your petitions. You can go to God if he is the desire of your heart. You can go to God and make your petitions known. Paul argues the same thing in the New Testament, that we take our requests before God, we take our petitions to God, but we do it with thanksgiving, We do it with reverence. We do it with honor. So it doesn't start with, I want stuff. I'll go to God and demand stuff. It starts with the love and respect and honoring of God, the sacrificing to God, God being the primary desire of your heart. And, oh, yes, once that relationship is secure, then take your petitions to him and let him know what you're requesting. By the way, Jesus also said, your father in heaven knows what things you have need of. So he is going to provide for you. But sometimes we have petitions, desires, pains, problems, sicknesses, difficulties in life, where David says it's also okay to go to him and pray to him, because after all, he's the one who is your deliverer. He is the one who is your hiding place. He is the one who answers you in your day of trouble. So again, everything in your life, whether it's your reaction to trouble or whether it's reaction to blessings, all of it is God-centered. So may the Lord, Yahweh, fulfill your petitions. Now I know that Yahweh saves his anointed. There's a very theological statement. Here's what I know. I know that God saves his anointed. Now, the last several weeks, as we've been coming across this word saved and salvation in the book of Psalms, I've been stressing that what David is usually talking about is physical salvation, deliverance from his enemies, preservation of life, and that seems to be the case here as well. Now, I know that the Lord protects, delivers the people he has anointed, in this case, He's talking about Israel. But it's still a truism that whoever God has chosen, whoever God has anointed, he is going to protect, he is going to preserve, he is going to save. And he will answer his anointed from his holy heaven, and with the saving strength of his right hand. In other words, you can't count on your right hand. You can't count on your strength. You can't count on your ability to get you through the troubles of life. When was the last time anybody here had a cold? Were you able to think your way out of it? No, you can't do anything. Jesus said, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to your stature? You you can't do that stuff. Only God can do that stuff. If I could do hair, you don't think I would have by now? So we have to understand that God is the provider, that God is the protection. He is the saving strength and he is the answer to everything that we need, whether it's trouble, whether it's blessings. Everything that we have in this life is a gift from him because he made and created all things and he brought everything into being and even his name declares that. And so David, in handing out these blessings, says, may that God protect you, save you, look after you. Then in verse 7, he describes the basic human condition, which was true in his time, true today. Some boast in chariots and some in horses. In other words, human beings think, oh, I've got strength. I got me some tanks and an ICBM. I can mow down my enemies. I count on my own strength to get me through. In David's time, it was the chariots and the horses of war. So that's what some people boast about. But we will boast in the name of the Lord our God, Yahweh Adonai. We will boast in the strength and the name and the character of our God. Because he is our protector. (laughs) He is our salvation. And I know, says David, that he takes care of his anointed. They, the ones who boast in their chariots and their horses, they have bowed down and fallen. And then by way of contrast, but we have risen and stood upright. Save, O Yahweh, may the king answer us in the day that we call on him. So really that's a psalm of prayer and blessing. A psalm of declaration of the kind of God we worship. And David saying, you know, these blessings I've been writing about in the psalms aren't just for me. They're for all of his anointed, all the people who belong to him. God is going to protect you and save you and provide for you the same way he has me. And then David, even though he is king in Israel, calls God the real king, the true king May the king answer us in the day that we call. And that takes us to Psalm 21. Psalm 21 is really straightforward. It is just David declaring as the king that it is God who has made him king. It is Yahweh who has set him on the throne of Israel. And he's very keenly aware of that fact. Therefore, he is trying to rule according to the law of God, but he recognizes that everything he's capable of doing for the people of God is a blessing from God. It is God who is working through his chosen king. The first line is, O Lord, O Yahweh, in your strength, the king will be glad. So that's David's reference to himself. You're the real king. You're the king of heaven. You're the king of glory. You're the maker of all things. But you have made me king over Israel. And you know what makes me glad? It's not my horses. It's not my chariots. It's not my wives. It's not my palace. It's not, it's not all the stuff you've done for me. I'm glad because of you and that you chose me and that you made me king. Oh, Lord, in thy strength, the king will be glad And in thy salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. Granted, again, I do believe David is talking here about physical salvation. The restoration of his throne, the protection of Israel, of his kingship. But even if he's talking, or even if we want to apply this phrase to salvation eternally, that seems to also be playing into what he's thinking because in a moment, he's going to say that his days go on forever and ever. So there's a hint that David is even talking about eternal salvation. In thy salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. By the way, is that a subject for rejoicing for you?
0: Oh, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. It's also something we rejoice in. Verse 2. Thou hast given him his heart's desire. I mean, how much stuff did David have? I mean, just physical stuff. And sons and wives and posterity and promises, covenants from God on top of being king in great splendor. You've given him his heart's desire and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Think of that. Verse 3. For thou dost meet him, with blessings of good things, and thou dost set a crown of fine gold on his head. Very clearly, David is talking about himself in the first person here because I'm looking around the room, and so far, there's nobody here wearing a crown of gold. <laughs> so, David is saying, I'm the king, but you made me the king. You established me as king of Israel, and you sustain me, and you save me as king of Israel. And you've given me all of these blessings. David recognizes that every good thing he has in his life, every blessing, all the way to the job that he has as the king of Israel, every bit of that came to him from Yahweh. He did none of it on his own, not even his own warfare, not even his own fighting to protect himself or his people. He says it is God who has given him these blessings over and over again. Thou has given him his heart's desire, and thou hast not withheld the request of his lips. For thou dost meet him with the blessings of good things, and thou dost set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked, life of thee, we could read that as, I asked for life from you. David was oftentimes in trouble. We've read the other Psalms where he is saying, deliver me from my trouble. Deliver me from my enemies. David was in fear for his life. David talks about the fact that he laid in pools of tears on his bed because there was so much agonizing in his life. And so I asked life from you, and you gave it to me. Length of days, but then David adds, forever and ever. Not only did you sustain my life here, but when I die, I have the promise from you of living with you forever and ever. His glory, the king's glory, David's glory, is great through your salvation, through your provision. Splendor and majesty thou dost place upon me. He's living with kingly majesty kingly splendor and he sees all of that as being a gift from God he takes none of it for granted (coughs) verse 6 for thou dost make him most blessed forever and thou dost make him joyful with gladness in thy presence notice that it is not the stuff it is not the splendor it is not the glory it is not the kingship I mean after all If you think about the majesty of Solomon, I mean, Solomon was one really rich dude. And that is a direct quote. (laughs) Solomon was really well-to-do, but that wealth did not just happen the minute that Solomon became king. He inherited much of that wealth from his father. That's the kind of glory, the kind of honor, the kind of wealth that David was living in. He calls it splendor that he's living in. And yet, that's not what's attracting his attention. That's not what he glories in. What he is thankful for is that God has blessed him and will make him joyful in his presence, give him this eternal gladness, and that's what he really cares about. Here, let's apply that just real, real quickly, because I do need to get you out of here, and it is hot. But what's important to you in this lifetime? I mean, is it really the stuff? Do you feel like you've really, really made it when you get a little bit bigger house or a new car? Do you look at your possessions and say, wow, I am really killing it here. I'm doing great. Or is the true joy of your life the fact that God himself Wrote your name down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world.
0: That's it.
1: Because all the stuff of this life, all the splendor of this life, all the blessings, the substance of this life is passing away. According to Peter, it's all going to burn. If your heart is set on the things of this planet, then that's all you're really going to get out of this life. And you have nothing but the judgment of God to look forward to. But David here has demonstrated the exact right attitude, which is despite being surrounded by all these blessings, which we are, and despite being surrounded by splendor, which many of us, let's be honest, really are. If you look at the world population and the number of people who live in overt poverty, we live in air conditioning. We walk on carpet. We drive in cars that are air conditioned. We get a little bit hungry. We just hit a drive-through. I mean, we are so, so very fortunate. And yet, that's not what we should be looking at. The great blessing of our lives is that God himself knows who we are, that we are among his chosen, among his anointed. That's the true blessing of this life. Because when you die, how much of the stuff of this life do you take with you? I mean, none. So all of that counts for nothing in eternity. What counts is your relationship with God. And is he going to look at you and say, well done, good and faithful servant? Or is he going to say, depart from me into outer darkness? And that's when you're going to realize that the stuff of this life meant nothing. So David is demonstrating that attitude. In verse 5, he says, the glory of the king is great, through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you have placed upon him. For thou dost make him most blessed forever. Thou dost make him joyful with gladness in thy presence. For the king trusts in Yahweh. He doesn't trust in his stuff, not in his horses, not in his chariots, not in his mighty men. He trusts in God. And through the loving kindness of the Most High... He will not be shaken. What a great statement. Because of the loving kindness, the grace, the unmerited favor of God, because of the unchangeableness of the character of God, David says, no matter what happens in this life, no matter the hardships, no matter the difficulties, I won't be shaken. I will not change my mind. I will not give up on the faith. I will indeed continue to worship God, to honor God, to sacrifice to God, the most high God, the maker of heaven and earth. And I'm not even doing that because I'm so dedicated, because I'm so good at this. He says, I'm doing all of that through your loving kindness. You're not giving up on me. And I deserve to be given up on. And yet because of your kindness, you, the most high, have made it so that I will not be shaken from you. Your hand will find out all your enemies, and your right hand will find out those who hate you. You know, this past Sunday, I talked about the fact that all the way through the Bible, Old and New Testament, the common theme is judgment or blessing. David just did the same thing. The first half of this psalm was all about the blessings that David received from God. The second half of this psalm is, but judgment's coming. And for those who do not find their security, their satisfaction in Yahweh, there's a judgment coming from Yahweh. And David is sure that God is going to find out all his enemies. And with his right hand, with his strength, he's going to find out every one of those who hate you. And you will make them as a fiery oven. In the time of your anger, the Lord will swallow them up in his wrath. That's what we're reading on Sundays. That's what Revelation is describing. God pouring out his wrath. Because again, that is an essential element of the whole of the Bible. To the ones that he loves, to the ones that he chose, to his anointed, blessings. But to his enemies, to the scoffers, to the cynics of this world, There is a fiery judgment coming that David likens to a fiery oven in the time of God's anger. And Yahweh will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will devour them. Their offspring thou wilt destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. Now, not only is that a historic fact, I mean, there are whole people groups, whole tribes, whole families of people who have just disappeared to history. God has just cut them off. But it is also true in an eschatological sense. By the time we get to the new heavens and the new earth, there are going to be no more sinners there, no descendants of the enemies of God there. He is ultimately going to create that heavenly splendor for every one of his anointed so that we can live in this place where, as Jesus said, my Father's house has all these dwelling places and they're created for you. By the time we get to Revelation 21 and 22, someday, if Jesus doesn't come back first, we're going to read about the splendor of the new Jerusalem and it's just impossibly hard to comprehend that God would be willing to give Kenneth a place like that. Or Tom. Or Steve. Especially Steve. Steve. (laughs) Or Luann. Any of us, we don't deserve the kind of splendor that's coming. God is going to make a separation. He's going to make a distinction between those who are his anointed and those who are his enemies And he's going to not only devour his enemies in fire and swallow them up in his wrath, but he's going to destroy them from off the earth. And their descendants will be destroyed from among the sons of men. And though they intended evil against God, which is what all sinners ultimately want, they want evil against God, which is why... I'm now going to return momentarily to a theme I was developing Sunday morning, which is why so much of what we see in the world right now politically is so anti-God, so anti-biblical. The things that are argued about publicly, socially, the things that are dividing people politically are all things moral questions. that are already answered in the Bible, that are already answered by God. And it is the enemies of God who are doing and promoting the very opposite of what God calls right and holy. That's what David's talking about here. And though they intend this evil, sometimes it's easy for us when we see the kind of trouble that's happening in the world right now. It's kind of easy to think, wow, the world is just really going to hell in a handbasket. It's easy to think the whole world seems to have just turned against God. Here's David's answer, that even though they intend evil against you and devise their plots, they will not succeed. They will not succeed. Look, you get what, three score and 10, 70 years? Some of us a few more, some of us a few less. But that's basically what you get here on planet Earth. So you got, you got that amount of time to make a real mess of your life and to rebel against God. And then he's got all of eternity to make sure that you know that your plans against him not only didn't succeed, but resulted in eternal condemnation for you. Though they intended evil against thee and devised a plot, they will not succeed. Why? Because you will make them turn their back, which means they're going to run away in fear, and thou wilt aim your bowstrings at their faces. Basically, the description David lays out is God is going to pick up his weapon of war and go to you personally. Pull that bow back and that arrow's right at you. For thou wilt make them turn their back and thou wilt aim with thy bowstrings at their faces. And despite all that, despite that punishment coming and despite the blessings that David has as the king of Israel, all of that is encompassed in this very last sentence. And boy, I like this last sentence because. Even though David knows that's what's going to happen. Even though we know that the world right now is in fact going crazy and is increasingly godless and sin is just running rampant on the planet right now. We know that God is on his throne doing whatever seems good to him. And so with David, we can say, be thou exalted, O Lord, in thy strength. Whatever you're doing, do it. Because we know that whatever God is doing is working for his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. Mm -hmm. And even as the world looks increasingly godless, we know that God is still the maker, creator, sustainer of all things. He told us it was going to get worse. By the way, I took it as a source of great personal pride that Steve on Sunday stood right here and repeated, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. I was so happy that I had drilled that into his brain. (laughs) I mean, yeah, the world is getting worse, but it's getting gloriously worse because it's satisfying exactly what the Bible says is going to happen. Yes, it's getting dark, but it's a glorious darkness. It's the darkness that becomes the backdrop against which our Lord and Savior is going to return. And the brightness of his return is going to be all the more obvious (laughs) against the backdrop of this kind of darkness. And so David said, and I think we can say with him, be exalted, O Yahweh. Do what you're going to do. Do judge your enemies. Do bless your anointed. Be thou exalted, O Lord, in thy strength, And our response to God being God is, and we will sing and praise you in your power. Even as God is doing the things that he said he was going to do, and therefore the world is falling under his increasing judgment and becoming increasingly crazy, nevertheless, we know that it is God who is doing it. It is Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, who is doing it. Therefore, we can have confidence. We're not going to be shaken. We're going to be sustained in our faith. And even as God is executing his wrath, we're able to say, you go, God. You do what you said you were going to do because you are God. You be exalted, O Yahweh, as you exercise your strength. And we're just going to sing and praise you while you're doing it. I like that summation. So that is Psalm 20 and 21. Any questions? Yes, sir. At uh, Psalm 20, verse 1, uh, it mentions the name of the God of Jacob. Jacob. Mm -hmm. And he chooses Jacob to refer to Isaac's descendants as opposed to Israel. Jacob often being a less than complimentary term for what they're doing. Heel catcher, supplanter. Israel a much more gracious term. Why was Jacob picked here? I I would have thought Israel fits the, the phrase
0: a whole lot better.
1: Well, I can't say why. I can only say that it is. If I were going to apply a theological principle to it, I would say it's interesting that God reminds Jacob, I chose you, I elected you, I anointed you, but you didn't deserve it. You're still Jacob. If I were going to pose an answer as to why, that would be my best guess. Or or may the name of the God of Jacob protect you because you need protecting because you're a mess. <laughs> well, and ain't we all? Yeah. Anything else?
0: Well, you have to remember that he is on the throne and that he will give judgment. Um, with you know all the talk about abortion and talk about um, homosexuality and transgenderism, it's just
1: yeah. Gotta
0: kind of remind myself, especially when I see all that.
1: There's none of that that he isn't aware of and that he's not going to judge. And so much of the world casts off the Bible and Christianity primarily because it speaks of their judgment. And they want to avoid that judgment. And so they think the way to avoid it is to just try to erase the Bible, erase Christianity. And if we can just stick our fingers in our ears and go, la, 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 then we're not going to have to think about that. But the reality is everybody dies. And then comes the judgment. And boy, I would not want to be in their shoes, standing before God without Jesus as my intercessor and having to give an answer for what I did in this lifetime. Because he is, as we just read, going to discover all his enemies and is going to judge them. And David's language of him pulling back his bowstring at your face makes it very personal. It's, it's you individually that he's going to judge. Yeah, it's, it's going to be a, a glorious day one day when the Lord returns to set up his kingdom. But it's also going to be a dark and scary day because he's going to come back with that rod of iron and start smashing nations like pottery. So again, blessings, judgment. Good for us. Really bad for them. Anything else?: Yes, sir.
0: You mentioned the name Lord's name a lot in 20, Psalm 2020, 20, Psalm 111 it says, "Reverend is His name.":
1: Reverence is His name." Yeah. I just I find it interesting, historically, that God would say, "This is my name." Call me by my name. And then men would go, "Uh, no. And that's been going on for so long that we've just gotten used to it. We think Jehovah is his name. And it's just not. So We need to reverence his name. And that name is Yahweh. Yahweh. So call him by name. David certainly did. The translation of David didn't. But David did.